John, begin with your apology. Why? Why? I, I never apologize. This I, is all I your fault. <laughs> I feel like I don't deserve to, and I don't have to. I, it's I, your my fault that we took a week off. Obviously, we have such a huge listener, listenership, they demand mm. to know that we are going to be there reliably every week. And already, we've taken off one week this year because mm. of you, and now we're going to take off a second week because of you. Well, we already did take off a second week, and that was because of both of us, because we were both on vacation, Greg, so you have no excuse. Uh, what do you mean I have no excuse? I have a perfectly legitimate you can't, excuse. I went no, to go you see can't the say that it's only my fault. You can't say that it's it was only my fault. Of course I can. I can't, uh, I've gotten ahead of the narrative. Um, I'm, like, uh, <sighs> our, I'm like that company, that holding company that realized they had ties to the Nazis. And so every mm. headline, it wasn't, hey, this holding company has ties to the Nazis. Instead, it's this holding company has ties to the Nazis. And here's what we're doing about it. Um, when they <laughs> leaked that sad. story to the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and all these other water carriers for mm. big business and tech. I mean, they could have just waited a few years and then they realized Nazis were cool. I mean, come on. Yeah, Nazis oh, yeah. Are, Nazis are everywhere. Nazis are trending on Twitter. They're coming back, folks. They're Yeah, they're everywhere yeah. now. Oh, I'll tell you where they weren't, where we were on our summer vacation. John, <laughs> answer you, that question. Where were we on our summer vacation? We went to New Hampshire, where the balloons, <laughs> they welcomed us back. John, is that a bad sign that you're now interpreting this wonderful family vacation that we that we enjoyed together uh, via a 40-year-old movie at this point on Golden I, Pond? First of all, it's not 40. I would say it's only like, wait, it came out in like 1980, right? 1981, yeah, so coming up it's, on it's 38 years. 40. 30, come on. 38. Come on. I rounded up. It's only... Like I say 38. Do you know how many syllables that is? <laughs> Greg, the whole movie is about aging, all right? And about aging gracefully. So you have to be true. You have to be true about these words, you see. And I think it's important for our super fans out there who are just who are, who are chomping at the bit for a new episode that I only make reference to movies that we've watched for this podcast, don't you think? Like as a, as a little tease, Easter eggs. I, I suppose, although, yeah, the, I think you're you're asking a lot for our audience to remember movies from uh, <laughs> weeks and weeks ago. Mm. What number was on Golden Pond, John? Go ahead, tell, tell the folks. You've that got encyclopedic was... knowledge of these things? Oh, phew. episode 8050. <laughs> like, <whew. laughs> It's just a classic. Sticks out in my brain. 8050, I know. Those those are some of our best work, I'd say. That's what I'd put mm-hmm. on a reel uh, to send to... I would to... say that's our that was our home stretch. Our, our 72... 72-6-ish was our, was our best, and then we continue that on for the next uh, Flubagast episodes. <laughs> yeah. I'm having a stroke, apparently. <laughs> I, yeah. Sorry, sorry if we're a little rusty. Um... <laughs> Hey, I've got an idea that'll bring us back. Why don't I tell you what I did on my summer vacation? Because I didn't just make a, a a quick stop in New Hampshire. I also went to oh, the wonderful, Here glamorous we go, New York City. All right. Tear out your earbuds. And ear, yeah. <laughs> Take out your earbuds. Yeah, the, great. Yeah. <laughs> Take out your earbuds for the next 10 minutes because Greg's going to go on and on and on about something he did that everyone's already done or seen or doesn't care about. So remember okay. Disneyland? John, Greg th- talked in infinitum about Disneyland. Let's see what he's got for us this week. <laughs> Exactly, John. My whole life is content now, and at least I'm bringing it to the people. What are you doing other than attempting to shoot it down? Again, the world's worst improv partner, John. <laughs> Just tell them about your weekend in New York, okay? I'm listening. Okay. Uh, you've, I'm, I'm wrapped with it. It was it, First of all, it was only two days. The other half was in New Hampshire with our wonderful family, and then we said, see you later. We're off to see a Broadway show, which I'll get to later. But, we said, uh, fuck it, you, we got Hamilton tickets. <laughs> Which is really the ultimate excuse any millennial yeah. can use. Fuck you, Absolutely. I've got Hamilton. Yeah. 
so we had a wonderful time with our family, but, uh, you know, we had these tickets to see Hamilton, uh, which is apparently a big show, apparently still a hot ticket. I had no idea. Um, have you heard of the show Hamilton or no, what's it about? I assume it's about some kind of talking pig. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good. No, it's about Joe Hamilton, the former, uh, Georgia tech quarterback. God, nobody's <laughs> going to get that. Anyway, we arrived <laughs> in New York city. It's a, it's a, it's a cool breezy 90 degrees and it's mm-hmm. trash day the next day. So it smells wonderful. <laughs> of course. So obviously, obviously, we love New York. The one thing I will give credit to is, I think this is a bit fatuous to claim that a, a whole region or city has uh, has the stake on the best food. Mm-hmm. Like say, hey, New York has the best bagels, or Los Angeles has the best tacos. Like obviously, regionality shouldn't matter at this point, especially when recipes are are delivered all over the internet. Mm-hmm. But I will admit, we're walking down Eighth Avenue. We stop at a little hole in the wall whose name I can't remember. They probably don't even have a, a, a Yelp page. <laughs> we get a slice, I bite into it, and I think, damn it, they're right. This is the best slice of pizza I've ever had. <laughs> it's the, and I was it's so the alkali, annoyed. <laughs> it's that water. It's that alkali water that just, you know, they put it into their flour, and it's just like, ooh, That's why their bagels are so good, Greg. Are you sure? Well, we did have a bagel, and that was just ordinary. Now, here's where me and my husband claim New York has claim to the best food, and that's the Chinese food. Because okay. if, you, if you're if you on the West Coast like we are, everything's like a little too authentic. Like everything's mm-hmm. a little too close to the original. And that's not what Americans are about. Americans no. are about taking, interpreting, and imperializing. And so American Chinese food is clearly the superior Chinese food. And the New Yorkers have perfected it. Yeah. Also, I think you're you're being a little too uh, uh, narrow there in your assessment. Not just Americans, white people. Let's, let's oh, be yes. broad. Wh- okay, fair point. Fair point. White yeah. people, Chinese food is the yes. best American food. Mm-hmm. And we should also give credit to your husband, who is born and raised in New York. He's an authentic yeah, exactly. New Yorker. Hey, I'm walking here. Yo, hey, Gabagoo. Hey. Hey. hey, I'm from the Bronx Jake. over here. Yeah, <laughs> forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. You know all those classic New York movie lines that we love. <laughs> Greg, we're only supposed to reference movies we've done for the podcast. We haven't done Chinatown for the podcast. Uh, I talked about Chinatown for the podcast. Again, the streak is know. ruined. I talked about it two weeks ago. So It's not canon anymore. Forget it. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. All right. Continue on with your book report about New York. <laughs> All right. Well, and new. New York is new. E, enormous. <laughs> new York is enormous. New stands for new, and York stands for York. <laughs> And city is the fact that it is a city. Now, we did something else very authentically in New York. We went to Broadway. Ah, yes, Broadway. We went to the Richard Rogers Theater, which is actually on 8th Avenue, but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. And we went to see Hamilton. By the way, that's that's always fun um, when you get on the wait list in 2015, get notified <laughs> that your tickets are available in 2018, and then get to see the show a year later in 2019. Always good. <laughs> wow. Wait, has yeah. that show really been on since 2015? Yes. Wow. Okay. All right. I'm, that's I'd say, I'd say I also no the crowd was just, like. as, just as enthused. Uh, well, that's the other thing, too, about seeing a, a show on, a, especially a hot ticket like Hamilton on Broadway, is that expectations are sky high. Mm-hmm. And so for the neophyte like me, who who's only heard uh, 
Hamilton via his fiance and his mother and every other, um, mostly women <laughs> in his life, that mm-hmm. adore the soundtrack and the play itself. Like mm-hmm. I, the ticket is really wasted on me. I'm somebody who do- <laughs> generally doesn't like musicals. <laughs> yeah, but you're like one of the last few who hasn't seen it live at this point. So I mean, who else <laughs> are you going to give it to? I, that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say from there, like very good. I think for what Broadway people want, it is. Uh, <laughs> It is what exactly. those Broadway people want. <laughs> well, exactly, because you know, revealing my biases, I I am not a musical person. Uh, mm-hmm. Less is more in in my taste. Whereas mm-hmm. for Broadway, it's clear that more is more. So there's so much. Uh, there's so much dancing. There's so much choreography. There's so many cast members, even though people are splitting roles. So. I, I for what people like want in a show, I can I completely understand why it's ta- why it's launched this cultural phenomenon. Because also I didn't realize a few things about the show. It is about the cult of personality, mm-hmm. because there's a whole song about like who's going to tell Alexander Hamilton's story when he dies, when he's an idiot and does first of all gets into a duel. Who gets into a duel, really? I mean, <laughs> I mean the ego on this guy. No wonder he's wondering exactly. about who's going to tell my And then not to fire story. back, <laughs> dummy. The bad bad duel technique. You should have you should have been consigned to the dustbins of history but no it's all about building a cult of personality and so that's where really the phenomenon comes from but also mm-hmm. i didn't realize i thought the the soundtrack was a little uh corny when mm-hmm. they have to explain like what year it is and this is what this character's feeling um mm-hmm. i didn't know that was a necessity so the whole play is sung through yeah it's i had no idea <laughs> so and <laughs> it just made me wish for don't you mean actual... like wrapped through like because it's like well, hip-hop inspired well, no, but there's actual like regular numbers uh, mm. where I think the original cast like got to got to sing their hearts out. Um, that's what a lot of the char- That's where a lot of the cast members uh, excelled because this was not the original cast. I know. Three years later, what the hell, guys? <laughs> I mean, what does Lin Manuel Miranda have anything better to do? Come on. <laughs> I know you can't, you can't do three years of a, of a Broadway run. Lazy, but. Um, where the current cast uh, maybe could have done better was in the rapping because it felt like they couldn't keep up or couldn't like I don't I don't know like could project as well as they could sing because once they did start singing that that was that was amazing um, mm-hmm. the amount of range that they had and, and depth in their voice but uh, the the rapping might have struggled um, also the the cabinet rap battle was embarrassing um, I, I would mm-hmm. like to picture the uh, the Trump White House having, having uh, rap battles um, that seems to be a a product of when uh, a particular idiot didn't ascend to the White House but uh, mm-hmm. the rest of the play is very good so okay um, I don't know uh, hey this Hamilton thing uh, you know <laughs> I don't know if you heard of it but it turns out you know it seems pretty good. Uh, this is perfect Greg timeline. Four years too late. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> to give it a rousing recommendation. Yeah. Have you have you seen it yet, John? Or have you heard the soundtrack or I, I've heard the soundtrack and I do not care for it. Uh okay. I'm 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 a student of Sondheim, so I, if I'm going into a musical I want a little more uh, bravado, let's say. A I, I'd say there's bra- a lot of bravado in the stage production. Actually that's one thing I will mention. If you are gonna see it, see like a high school production of it. Because it'll be far simpler. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore with a lot more charm. Exactly. I, I, don't, because... I don't quite understand how it works, like, when a play gets off-Broadway. Like, when when is it, like, free reign for high schools to do it? Like, I, I never quite it, I... understood that. Because there, there is some kind of, like, 
there is some kind of like royalty thing you do need to kind of get permission but there's some plays like a get like fiddler on the roof where it's like just kind of implied or the music man where it's just like hey yeah go nuts go go get them kids it's yeah i don't think it's like free reign i think it's more like yeah you do have to license but there are musicals with big name recognition that i'm sure high schools like once they put it on their marquee like it, not just parents are going to go see it like everybody in the community mm-hmm. is going to go see fiddler on the roof or the music man or a musical that people have actually heard of so mm-hmm. once they do start licensing it to high schools like i'm sure they're like yeah it'll get, they'll sell like gangbusters um, no matter okay. what the high school is even even your worst theater company will sell like gangbusters so but i like the fact that that it'll be simpler because there's some there, there's actually two turntables on the stage john so the characters mm. can actually spin around in multiple <laughs> directions it was a lot for my brain to handle, I'm going to be honest. Oh, so they don't even have to dance. This is ridiculous. What am I paying yeah. for? They just <laughs> let the machines do the work. <laughs> exactly. They just had to stand still. Well, between like putting furniture out and like, also on this <laughs> turntable, I'm impressed nobody knocked into each other or tripped. It's as if they practice these things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, I remember the last like off-Broadway play, or at least like a Broadway touring play that I saw was uh, Kinky Boots. And they do like mm-hmm. this amazing number with like uh, the, the 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 it takes place in like a shoe factory. So there's these conveyor belts, but then they do this big dance number where they use the conveyor belts, and they're it's like okay go, it's it's nuts, but you know, and they do it all live right in front of you. It's nuts, and they do it in heels because it's kinky boots. It's yeah, so yeah, okay. those Broadway productions, uh, they're uh, qu- produced quite well. All right, <laughs> hot yeah. take, hot take, guys. Yes, stop stop the presses. <laughs> A lot of money goes into Broadway, and it shows. Yes. Mm. John, speaking (sighs) of productions that a lot of money goes into, Mm -hmm. and a lot of tension goes into as well, um, traveling to uh, the Northeast wasn't the only place that we went to on our summer vacation. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. We we like to take a jaunt down to the local cinema and see what's playing and report back to you, our audience. Yeah, and so we were transported not just to another place, but to another time. Mm. <laughs> 1969 Hollywood. Because, of course, we, we are talking about the movie that everybody's talking about now, Quentin Tarantino's latest, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? you forgot the ellipses once upon a time dot 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 i can't figure that out yeah because sometimes the title is once upon a time dot 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 in hollywood Mm -hmm. i think i also saw it written as once upon a time in dot 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 hollywood oh really yeah so i've always seen it i've always seen it ellipses in hollywood okay which apparently that the title is a reference from sergio leone's work but it's neither a Western nor a realistic depiction of the immigrant experience in America. So, N- nor do either of those titles have ellipses in them. So I'm exactly. Not sure where the heck it comes so, from. Uh, I'm sorry to report, guys. Quentin Tarantino is back on his shit. Okay. Yeah. So here we are. <laughs> Everyone, uh, I, I I don't know if I can talk about this movie without talking about like the 
response and the reviews because everybody has been talking about this being his most introspective movie. This has been his <laughs> most different and 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 uh, uh, adventurous movie he's done to date. And the whole time I'm watching it is like, oh my god, I feel the same way about this movie as I do about all his other movies. You can cut off an hour and it still works the same way. <laughs> I think it's important to bring that up because we saw this a week after its release and already the, the internet Arazzi is just uh, <laughs> fond over this particular picture. Um, I, obviously, this is already like a front runner for the best picture of the year. Like it's probably going to win multiple Oscars for production design, probably its script, maybe best picture of the year because nothing else of note has really come out in 2019. <laughs> so that's kind of like coloring our impression so far and it might color yours so we hope by now you have seen it if you are we're going to completely spoil it as well which mm, i think is also key you can't talk about this movie without talking about the endings so yeah, yeah. there you are yeah so yes so i'm i'm, I'm glad you brought that up like he's he's back, he's back on his uh his, his shit um <laughs> Obviously, I get very, I get very squeamish about swearing, and I'm gonna get very squeamish about other things in this movie, um, <laughs> because I, I, I figure this out. This, some people have have ascribed Tarantino as the last like auteur who's currently like mm-hmm. working today. He's la- he's really the last like a filmmaker who can command a, other than maybe Christopher Nolan. He's the last filmmaker that can really command a, a big budget a studio release to really ascribe like a personal vision or a personal statement uh, mm-hmm. as well as something original not even Steven Spielberg can do that anymore uh, if he ever has but <laughs> I mean I, I think it's more like he just doesn't want to Grandpa, yeah. Grandpa just wants to pay the bills <laughs> yeah well, I'm trying to think of all his classics and the only like original film of his was E.T. whereas like mm-hmm. Jaws is based on a book Jurassic Park is based on a book uh, Ready Player One obviously based on the best book so <laughs> I mean, we can get a whole rabbit hole of, of, of Steven Spielberg and his of war, but yeah, let's get let's it, stay on Quentin. Let's stay on Quentin. Yes, yes, exactly. And so what I what I figured out is that that auteurist really appeals to a bygone era where movies were just made for uh, white men from Generation X. He mm-hmm. ba- he's basically he's basically the Medea movie for uh, white white males <laughs> of age Gen X slash older millennials. And mm-hmm. so since we fit in that demographic, like ideally we should we should uh, adore this movie, right? No, we did not, <laughs> or at least I did not. Um, I didn't particularly care for it. Uh, I, th- okay. you know, there's, I, I, and I felt the same way I feel about every Quentin Tarantino movie. There's a lot to admire. Like you have to obviously admire the craft and the amount of texture and the commanding pacing that he brings to the movie. But it's still full full of all his hallmarks that I hate. It's too long. And it ends up where all his movies end up, a gratuitous, needlessly tasteless, violent end for no reason. And again, like, I felt this way about Reservoir Dogs. I felt this way about Pulp Fiction. At the end of the day, what's the bloody point? <laughs> like, <laughs> again, like, he's, he's he, going back to that whole thing. All he has at the end of the day is texture and production design. But if you look at it, like, from a plot perspective or a narrative perspective, I don't really know what he's trying to say. Besides, he just wants to, like, live in this world and revise history into something he would much more prefer happened. And I think that was also my problem with, like, Inglorious Bastards. I hated Inglorious Bastards because, again, it just felt so needlessly tasteless. And, again, like, wish fulfillment fantasy, which I guess is what, you know, oh, what people go to the cinema for. But then this movie is kind of even worse because of that because, again, it's trying to 
act as if it's like a real depiction of Hollywood, even though the title is meant to kind of invoke more of a fairy tale representation of it. But Hollywood in this movie still feels kind of like broke down and beaten. It's not like the glamorous like jet set rat pack. Granted, we do see a few Pan Am flights, but other than that, I don't feel like the movie's incongruous. Just like all Quentin Tarantino films, because he's got I'll, 10 million pieces of inspiration he's trying to cram together, like a kid with blocks. Like, this all fits together, right? No, no, it does not. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him a little bit more credit, because I think he's trying to do, at least in the beginning, something a little bit more lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Like, so there are Family Guy-esque cutaway gags to kind of introduce this world, um, namely this actor who's named Rick Dalton. Mm-hmm. And so we're introduced to him he's he's somewhat of a has-been he's meeting his his agent and um he's also very good at this establishing character names by repeating them and also like having little twists on them like his agent played by al pacino who does make a great impression his agent's mm-hmm. name is schwarz instead of schwartz mm-hmm. and so yeah we we kind of we're kind of introduced to this world via this fun light-hearted way um a lot of scenes a lot of montages of driving and from there, I was actually, like, kind of taken away by the movie. Like, unlike you, who's, like, waiting to arrive at a certain point. Um, <laughs> and that point being, like, a gratuitous, ugly uh, finale. Uh, I, I was happy to kind of, like, live in this world. And, again, all credit to Barbara Fine, the production designers, the costume designers. Like, that's all done exquisitely. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's what's going to take away awards at the end of the year, is the, the recreation of 1969 Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that's all great. But unlike you, I was enjoying it until um, I wasn't, which was that final point, which we'll get to, which mm-hmm. is the Manson family murders, or at least the alternate history that he's presenting here. Mm-hmm. So I think I think if you can like kind of ride that wave of this lighthearted has uh, lighthearted story of a has been played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who I think is good in this movie. Like what? It, maybe we should, maybe that's our entry point. It's not the the Tarantino verse, but instead the actors that he's using the the his dolls in this case. <laughs> <laughs> what did what did you think of Leonardo DiCaprio as this kind of stuttering alcoholic has been? So okay, that is again like going back to my pains on Pulp Fiction, like there's a lot to yeah. admire. So for me, the relationship between Rick Dalton and his uh, uh, his partner in crime, so to speak, Booth Cliff. His stuntman, yeah. His stuntman. They have obviously a great rapport and I really do appreciate that relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. Cliff is played by Brad Pitt and he is just like a stoic, cool as fuck dude. And yeah. contrast that with uh, Rick Dalton, who is, you know, a bundle of nerves. And <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... Leonardo DiCaprio is already like a pretty like manic like I'm acting here kind yeah. of actor. <laughs> he brings a he... lot of energy to the show. <laughs> Every show he's in. <laughs> and I think and I think he does a great job with that here. Like again pre- yeah. presenting actors as they probably truly are, which is just like bundles of nerves who care so much about what everyone thinks of them at all times. Like he, mm-hmm. he's you know Rick Dalton, he's like on screen, he's obviously like this cold stone killer, but then you meet the actual real Rick Dalton, he's like always 2 seconds away from crying or just absolutely losing it. Yeah. <laughs> and hence why he drinks away his feelings. Seems this world got you down. You're feeling bad vibrations. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. <laughs> So you still the wreck, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll give credit to that. I, I do wish I got a little bit more from Brad Pitt. Like, mm -hmm. here's, the th here's the thing about uh, speaking of the Tarantino-verse. Like, he does find these actors who are, like, the perfect fit for his dialogue, namely mm -hmm. Samuel L. Jackson and Christoph Waltz. But based on this and the Glorious Bastards, I'm going to say Brad Pitt isn't it. Um, like he's cool as the somewhat stoic stuntman when contrasted with the again the stuttering chain smoker played by Leonardo DiCaprio but it's when he's on his own he seems like mannered or mm. like he seems too rehearsed like he's always like winding up for what he's about to say and and here it is in a very <laughs> in a very mannered way uh, mm -hmm. so that that I found a little distracting and it, but it only comes in a, in a moment that, and this is what I'm well, I'm trying to talk about things that I liked about the movie before we'll get to the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I was waiting for, like, while well, I like the lighthearted turn, tone early, I'll give Tarantino credit for knowing how to build a tense scene. Um, there's obviously that famous uh, scene in the basement bar and in Glorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's, he does that well, but why does he have to yeah. do that for every scene? And why does it have to be drawn up for 20 minutes at a time? Yeah, well, that, that doesn't that doesn't really happen to this movie until we get to Spawn Ranch, the, the famous old movie. I say famous only to weirdos like you, me, and <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. Do people know that the Spawn Ranch was a famous uh, filming location? But that's also where uh, the Manson family did take over and that's when Clint Booth visits. That's the only scene that has kind of that trademark tension because, like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a character clearly wants to see somebody who we're not sure if they're alive, dead, what have you. That's mm -hmm. the only scene that has that. The rest of the time, I was kind of floating on um, Margot Robbie as uh, she plays Sharon Tate. She's the other, like, she's the the she ba she basically barely completes this triangle of these three stars, like trying yeah. to ride this wave of happy Hollywood. I, mm. I say barely because, unlike Clint and Rick, they, she doesn't have anything to do during the day. Um, she retrieves no. she she retrieves basically uh, a, a little nod to Roman Plansky's career. She retrieves uh, Tess Dubaville, um, who Roman Plansky would later adapt in his in his first post uh, post scandal uh, movie. I thought that was a little odd that choice, mm. but um, then. <laughs> And she goes basically to see herself on screen and then just goes home. Um, so she gets to be this uh, this waif who, who kind of uh, gets to relish in the fact that she gets to entertain, uh, in this case, dozens of people at a L.A. cinema. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if people are having many retrospectives on The Wrecking Crew starring Dean Martin, other than, other than weirdos who love every movie they see, like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> That's the ultimate... This uh, this my ultimate summation of Quentin Tarantino's career. Imagine if you had that much talent, but just the modicum of taste or the or the decisiveness <laughs> to make good decisions. Like just imagine what he would be capable of. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> You're absolutely right about the Shannon Tate. It just bothered me so much because she's meant to be kind of like aloof or like this kind of angelic presence throughout the movie, but it's like he yeah. wants to center scenes around her but he's like too scared to give her dialogue. So it's just like Margot Robbie just kind of like silently going throughout her day. And it, it doesn't yeah. amount to anything. Uh, again, much like most of this movie. So <laughs> um, I won't say, I won't say amount to anything. Like obviously mm -hmm. it's a, 
like every auteur who's working today, I said Christopher Nolan, maybe we'll apply this to Wes Anderson as well. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a kid playing in his dollhouse. <laughs> in this case, Margot Robbie's the doll who gets the relish in the fact that she uh, is, a, I, I guess, on the upswing of her career. The yeah. fact that she is in a supporting role in a big Dean Martin film, even though Dean Martin's star was falling in 1969. Mm-hmm. And so, like, he gets the relish in that fantasy. But this is where the, the externalities, I think, started to bug me a little bit. Um, you were bothered throughout the film. For me, it was more like the... In 1969, Hollywood is fundamentally changing mm-hmm. in, in ways that aren't acknowledged. Like, I, I don't think... I don't think the the agent played by Al Pacino would be like, oh, awesome! Isn't it great how movies are so violent now? Namely, the movies yeah. you've been in, Rick Dalton. Exactly. <laughs> like that, that was scaring people back in the day. Exactly. And there's yeah, this also so, this weird touch that you can tell it was written by Quentin Tarantino because everyone has to mention what kind of film it was filmed on. Oh, it was filmed in thirty nine. Fil- yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was filmed in thirty five millimeter. Let me tell you. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, I sat. Down, he has to point out I sat down and watched in thirty five millimeter. <laughs> The other, the other big incongruous point. This happens early in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. It turns out Rick Dalton is neighbors with uh, the newlywed Roman Polanski and Sharon, Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. At one point, they stop next to one another, and <laughs> these two presumably red-blooded Americans see this car with Roman Polanski and the uh, the exquisite Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, one of the most beautiful women in the world. And what do both of them say? Wow, did you see that? That's director Roman Polanski <laughs> living next to me. <laughs> Nobody except weirdos like Quentin Tarantino would look at a car with a beautiful woman and some weird, long-haired, short European guy and say, like, wow, look at the short European guy who directs great movies like Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> I mean, so so it's it's that weird. It's that, but in the weirdo universe of the movie, yeah, that like because that, again, that this somehow is fantasy land. This is Quentin yeah. Tarantino's fantasy land. So there's also the other big incongruous thing is that you know Rick Dalton is obviously a fake actor and taking part in a very real world Hollywood, or at least what's supposed to feel like a very real world Hollywood. So there's a lot of times where he's interjected into other TV or film. So he yeah. had a guest spot on FBI. They edit him into like the uh, an episode of FBI, and then there's also they they turn into like a cutaway gag. Like there was a joke that he could have had Steve McQueen's part in The Great Escape, and so they show what Rick Dalton would look like in The Great Escape. They edit him into that footage, um, mm-hmm. having to use special effects. I thought you didn't like that very much, Quentin. I thought you liked practical, <laughs> but it never even with the greatest special effects, it's never going to look realistic seeing Leonardo DiCaprio in a 1960s TV show. Um, no matter how well it's edited. And then also, again, like going back to that weird, it's a weird fantasy just for kind of Quentin Tarantino. There's a movie where Rick Dalton is like, basically he's in this in-universe version of Inglorious Bastards. It's just him killing Nazis. It's like the 10 fists of whatever, whatever. And again, when he meets a... 14 fists of whatever, whatever. He meets a fan at one point and someone recognizes him from that movie. Now again, that movie would have been pure schlock and forgotten two minutes after it premiered. Yes. But it's like, oh, like there's the one fan. Actually, he's not even the only person who mentions it. There's another character who mentions it. (laughs) Exactly. Imagine like... other than like absolute brain dead idiots like you and me and saying like, oh, I recognize you from the Lords of Salem from 2014. <laughs> Remember the Lords of Salem? Like that's the kind of movie the 14 fists of McCluskey would be. And mm-hmm. so like to, to expect like anybody to any- remember that other than like 
uh, auteurist weirdos like Quentin Tarantino or, say, Edgar Wright or people who have seen yeah. tens of thousands of movies and interpret their life via movies. Like, yeah, it's, you're right. But, it I mean, it's kinda... especially incongruous at this era because, A, there was no analog way for people to rewatch things. There was no VHS. Yes. <laughs> but then, B, also the reason why film, you know, film nerds like Quentin Tarantino can thrive in this day and age is because of the Internet. And people can, like, yeah. revisit this stuff and research it. Like, in 1969, those people wouldn't have existed because they, they couldn't have existed. So yeah. it's just, oh, I did not. <laughs> well, John, well, John, we're playing on it. What about the theme of storytelling, huh? Mm. This is where we get into whatever heady ideas he's playing, in this, he's playing with in this universe. Namely, the idea of storytelling, uh, maybe fairy tale. Uh, maybe this story is somewhat fairy tale adjacent and maybe unreliable narrators. Like, I want to get to the scene with Bruce Lee. Obviously, okay. the the scene that's that's rankling some. So we have this moment where, again, moment I didn't like because Brad Pitt's alone. He's not playing off anything, and he has this uh, memory of why he didn't, why he can't get a job anymore as a stuntman. And mm-hmm. it's because he got into a fight with Bruce Lee on a playing a bit on when he was a co-star on the Green Hornet. Mm-hmm. And in this scene, like uh, Bruce Lee is uh, uh, talking about Muhammad Ali, and he's really uh, up. Uh, he's really kind of basically bragging about himself, using it as an excuse to brag about his martial arts skills. Yeah, and how good he is, you know. Yeah, and and so that leads to a fight. Like uh, Brad Pitt's character tries to knock him down a peg. It leads to a fight, and because of and because of the resulting damage to a car and the fact that he seriously risked the, the series co-star, Bruce Lee's uh, uh, very marketable face, um, mm-hmm. he's basically banned from ever, or at least blacklisted from being a stuntman again. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the fact that I completely forgot that that was actually a memory instead of like, a, a, you know, so you're right. Maybe the, there is this kind of playing with memories and like, oh, unreliable narration. Um but again, like because there is a narrator voiced by Kurt Russell who chimes in, who with barely, like, uh, yeah, but barely chimes in. Like that's the other thing. Yeah. Like it feels so incongruous whenever he comes in. Yeah, and he's a real character in in the mise en scene. He's an actual <laughs> character who's at one point Brad Pitt's character's boss. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like it goes, there's cutaway gags and there's also narration. But then also we'll have like thirty minute scenes that are completely uninterrupted. And it's like, mm-hmm. it just feels like a jumbled mess to me. Like, there's no, <laughs> like, if you kind of kept the narration throughout, I would have accepted or at least bookended it. But instead, it's kind of like, uh, when, you know, I'll just include the voiceover when I need it. And that's when it kind of, that's why it kind of bothered me. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Uh, August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the Flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel group telling you and me. Okay. Let's, yeah, so it, let's it, let's it, get it, to yeah, why this yeah. movie actually exists. <laughs> yes, ultimately, let, you know, you 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 thought it was talk, you know carrying themes about storytelling and like larger themes. There's really only one reason why this movie exists. Well, two. One, uh, Quentin Tarantino loves feet. Two. Um, 
<laughs> and seeing hippie girls, yes, who are who are <laughs> shoeless, obviously would <laughs> obviously give ample room to that. I think he's also hmm. gotten gotten into some dirty feet here. <laughs> oh yes, he loves because even dirty. even Sharon Tate, even Sharon Tate, uh, putting her feet up in the movie theater watching the Wrecking Crew, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> Got some black smudges on there, which uh, uh, if if uh, Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish didn't raise your eyebrows enough, um, <laughs> that one certainly did for me. See, I just but, wish um, he were more open about it. That's the thing. Like everyone knows it, but he won't talk about it. It's like Quentin, just treat your foot fetish like the N word. Just you have carte blanche. Come on. <laughs> to be fair to him, I I heard nary an N word in this in this whole movie. So growth? Question mark. <laughs> We'll get to growth later, but yeah, let's get to the real reason why this movie exists, and that's its mm-hmm. depiction of the, the infamous night, August 8th, 1969, the Sharon Tate murders, or in this mm. case, the alternate history, because exactly. instead of, because in the in the history of this movie, instead of the hippies going to Sharon Tate's house, instead they wind up next door at Rick Dalton's house, mm-hmm. and via some contrivances, they run into Clint Booth and his dog Brandy, his adorable little pitbull mix stafford terrier yeah and as i've already said they hate hippies and they they this this goes unremarked upon and i think this completely gets missed um charles manson is a deeply hateful evil person (laughs) whose main intention with sending his his brainwashed family out in the world was to incite a race war (laughs) like they were going to go there with the intention of like actually like the, the, portraying these murders as done by black people so that it, it would somehow sick law enforcement on on the black populace and inside a race war again that that always gets brushed over in this but uh he does this thing where he makes the villains look like buffoons mm-hmm. so like already like it feels like the the tension is deflated when you know in inglorious bastards the nazis look like idiots in django in i was about to say the django and Jane, um <laughs> the Ku Klux clan look like goofballs and so mm-hmm. the same here like when they decide like hey let's go get let's go get that rick dalton and of course they recite his entire imdb page when they know <laughs> hey that's rick dalton <laughs> so because yeah obviously the tension- everyone in this universe is a movie nerd yeah, so immediately all the tensions deflated because it, a, a you know it's gonna not gonna comport to history at all, mm-hmm. which uh, if you already know Inglorious Bastards and and Quentin Tarantino's filmography, like you know that he's already pulled this trick before this magic trick before. Like, oh, so, exactly. And yeah, like, so that's the other reason. Whatever why surprise I, felt... I had early in the movie is completely deflated now. Yeah, and the other thing that felt like such a betrayal, and I even like quizzed this. My friend saw this like yeah. a week earlier. And again, like all these articles, all these things that are happening around it are like, well, don't spoil the ending or, oh, you know, like you'll never guess. And I'm like, I quiz my friend. I'm like, let me guess. It ends in some kind of like bloody massacre, doesn't it? Because it's a Quentin Tarantino film. It's like yeah. the Manson family is going to get like blown to bits. Right. And he's like, he just gives me a wry smile. I'm like, I knew it. Like, that's what's going to happen. So <laughs> I went in like I didn't get spoiled, but I knew that's what exactly was going to happen. And it was just as tasteless as I, I assumed it was going to be. I'm glad you brought that word tasteless mm-hmm. because I'm sure Quentin Tarantino like wants to gleefully like use use the instrument of film and storytelling to gleefully see these villains of history like dispatched in this way. Mm-hmm. In, in Glorious Bastards it was obviously Nazis in in Django Unchained it was slaveholders, but in this case it's impressionable young women. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where the taste tastelessness comes in for me. Like, I'm sure it's hilarious when a hateful Nazi gets hit in the head or completely gets her face crushed in mm-hmm. a, a brick brick fireplace or with a can of dog food. Like, or, I'm sure that'd be uh, hilarious if it was a man. The fact that off. it's a young woman yeah. or whatever just made it feel like... I, like for five minutes, and it'll last in this two and a half hour runtime. It lasts all of five minutes. Like it's designed to just give you a stomach ache for that five minutes, and then you're back on this on the wave of, of Hollywood good vibes. <laughs> <laughs> and the, yeah, and that's the other kind of thing. At least like the Hateful Eight or Django and Chain felt like it was building to that big moment of ultra violence. Here, it's like it comes out of completely fucking nowhere. Like, yes, you know, he's setting up the acid cigarette, and yes, he's obviously setting up that the dog is quite vicious and well-trained, but, like, there's nothing that implies, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, Sharon Tate and Roman Plansky are important players, like, there's nothing setting up for this ridiculous over-the-top ending. No, and also, like, we see how needy and high-strung Rick Dalton is earlier in the film. Like, we see him rehearsing in his pool. And I thought that would have been a great setup at the end if he if he got distracted by mm-hmm. this uh, the, these hippies and the, the broken muffler on their car. But instead, this is supposed to be a celebratory night. Mm-hmm. But he's still, like, high-strung, and he still, like, gets on the, the wrong side of the hippies, first by instigating them. He's the one that instigates the hippies. <laughs> and then later, like, I thought, you know, as you said, every Quentin Tarantino scene has to be drawn out for about 20 minutes and ringed for all its dramatic tension mm-hmm. here uh, of a woman who's already had her like arm ripped out of her socket her face caved in by a, a can of dog food thrown at i don't know 80 miles an hour by cliff booth <laughs> <laughs> she runs out into the pool what's rick dalton's first instinct not just to get out of the pool i'm gonna get my flamethrower <laughs> that as we established earlier from the 14 fists of mccluskey <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like that's that's step number one. It's like we didn't. He didn't even like bother to get to the, get to like build up any dramatic tension that would lead to him using the flamethrower. He just busts it out, mm-hmm. and that's why like that's that's the other also like kind of really queasy feeling that the scene gives you. It's like I I don't even I'm not even gonna bother like trying to justify <laughs> or or change this, change this. At least like. It, as painful as the memories of slavery or the Holocaust, like that's that you can at least understand here it's 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 weird and disquieting and just ugly this whole scene <laughs> and it is like the, it's an analogy i used before it really did feel like whatever good vibes i had it, it was like eating a delicious meal and you get to the final bite and you realize there was a cockroach on, at the bottom of it <laughs> and that's and that's what i i really left <laughs> the impression of the film at until there's this conversation like the the, the whole scene resolves itself uh, Clint survives because Cliff survives. Excuse me, because we have to like you know go back on this wave of happy endings, and that's yep. when Rick meets his neighbor Sharon Tate for the first time, and mm-hmm. presumably we're left to like imagine like oh what if what if this uh, this glamorous era of Hollywood like never ended? What if um, I don't know the hippie movement also didn't end um, <laughs> with this uh, with this ugly night in August? Like what if what yeah. if we could still feel okay about picking up hitchhikers or you know just? Well, I mean the other important role that Rick Dalton is is playing is again like Quentin Tarantino's ultimate fantasy. Quentin Tarantino loves to give second acts to old Hollywood stars. So yes. it's implying that, you know, in this final weird confrontation, like this is now his chance he's done his, you know, spaghetti westerns. 
So now he's going to get, you know, a little more notoriety. And then he's finally going to meet Roman Polanski, and then they're going to ride a wave of, you know, good artistic films from then on out. Now, in this alternate history, does Roman Polanski rape a 13-year-old? Who knows? We'll have to wait for the sequel. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't even go through the work of saying, like, Sharon Tate went on to become, like, a, a, a box office straw and become the next... Exactly. I don't know, Raquel Welsh, or hell, even Meryl Streep. This is this is your universe, Tarantino. She, she could have been whatever. But instead, <laughs> and it just a, ends with... And you have with... Kurt Russell on hand to do narration for the end. Like, come on. Exactly. Yeah. I So, it, it felt so unearned, and I, I want to. I mentioned this word earlier, growth. Mm-hmm. We brought this up on our our last episode about Jackie Brown. Like we want uh, Quentin Tarantino to grow as a filmmaker and not just play in his dollhouse and just do genre pastiches of the films he loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm gonna use the, I'm gonna use a screenwriting term to basically portray that. I know I hate everybody's now a script doctor, but <laughs> um, this reminded me of a uh, this old screenwriting adage, or actually it's a storytelling adage: want versus need. Mm-hmm. This is the idea that you see it all the time in dramatic storytelling. A character is motivated by their want. They say, I want something. Mm-hmm. But then something comes in later in the story, and they realize, oh, I, it's not what I wanted. It's what I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to use a perfect example from another screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Jules Winfield, played by Samuel L. Jackson, is a hitman who kind of gl- kills gleefully. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, he toys with his, his, his intended targets, uh, recites Bible verses, um, until and basically, it's presumed that he wants to do that for uh, his his um, his uh, mob boss, played by Bing mm-hmm. Rains, for his whole life, basically. Is yeah, career. exactly. It's it's fine. He's fine with that until something comes in the story, like this miraculous event that changes his thinking. And then later in a restaurant, when two robbers comes in, he's presented with an opportunity to again blow away these bad people. But instead, he realizes what he needs is to be merciful. Mm-hmm. And so it's the difference between want and need, and such so character changing, and it's great dramatics if you want to tell a dramatic story. But every, it feels like every Quentin Tarantino movie since then has been a character wants something and then gets it in a violent, <laughs> gory, fiery way. In this yeah, case, Rick there's... Dalton wants to be reaccepted into Hollywood and then gets it by basically completely twisting the the night uh, the Sharon Tate murders. Mm. Like Greg, there's so much in tension in between the scenes. Tension, you know, <laughs> long, drawn-out dialogue scenes. You don't know what's gonna happen. Just that for two hours, <laughs> and then thirty minutes of blood. Yippee! <laughs> it's less than that. Yeah, it's only like five minutes of blood. It's really, mm. it's really. That scene is really gross. I will say, I I enjoyed the film far more than you did for those mm-hmm. first uh, two hours and twenty minutes or so. But I mean, I'm being I'm being a little overly dramatic. There's a lot I actually yeah. liked. I did like the uh, the time the scene where he's shooting that Lancer episode. That was probably my favorite stretch of the movie. But again, yeah. like I, uh, like how I feel with Pulp Fiction. I like the jewels and uh, the jewels and I almost said jewels and Vern. What's the other one's name? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, Vincent Vega. Jules and Vincent stuff I don't care for the Bruce Willis segment like again like there's parts I like and then there's parts I don't like but then I have to judge as an overall whole and then as a overall whole I did not enjoy myself so yeah thumbs down Quentin (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it a thumbs up with with reservations um Mm. There was a viral video about a, a, a parent dragging their child out of uh, Midsummer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'd say you should do with your uh, uh, spouse or whoever, or friends or whoever you go to the theater with. Um, 
once um after that great montage with uh, the Rolling Stones at a time, which again like did lift me off on a wave of good vibes. Like maybe you can just leave the theater at that point. Yeah. <laughs> and just and just I don't know. Everything worked out great for every character. How about that? <laughs> Even Sharon Tate. Yep. Fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Well, Greg, we've we've talked out of an item about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but we can't just leave it at that. No. And now again, you should owe you owe the people an apology, because generally <laughs> we reserve two two movies for every uh R and R episode that we do. Um mm-hmm. this time we only have one. However, that did not stop us from actually visiting the theater independently of one another. No, of course not. And yeah. we got the chance to go to two separate movies individually, and now we're going to report back to each other and you as well. So, yes, what fun! I, we I really want to know. Yeah, I really want to know about the movie you saw. Another big box office hit. Another huge release. Uh, mm. Even bigger than the latest Quentin Tarantino joint. John, tell us all about the art of racing in the rain. <laughs> That dog is so adorable, you guys. I like know. soups, adorbs. His name's Enzo. That's really cool. Yeah. And also voiced by Kevin Costner? Like, come on, please. Yeah. No, you saw another movie with animals in it. Or at least a facsimile of animals. Yeah, I think... Wait, what did I see? Uh, What did I see? Oh, yeah, The Lion King. Anyone remember The Lion King? It was a movie in the 90s, (laughs) and then they did it in CGI. That's all I can really remember about it, so... Cool. Yeah. Um, it's not very good. Uh, these <laughs> Disney remakes are quite boring, and I think The Lion King might be one of They keep getting worse and worse, too. It's really hard to say. I saw hmm. the live-action Aladdin a few months ago as well, and that one felt especially like a betrayal because I'm such a big fan of the original Aladdin. Um, that was yeah. one of our seminal pictures growing up, one of those yeah. VHSs that we wore to a nub. And as a kid growing up, I never actually really cared for The Lion King. I, once you divorce the human element out of a story i do get kind of a little less invested and so me too i yeah yeah i mean they're they walk on all fours they have yellow eyes i couldn't you know (laughs) it doesn't matter if they have the voice of matthew broderick or jeremy irons i just couldn't get into the world of lions Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the and this one's especially incongruous because they literally i mean shoot it they didn't shoot it they rendered it they render it exactly like a david attenborough like bbc documentary film and mm-hmm. it's, you know, for the most part, that kind of works when the animals are talking, but then they're forced to emote and then do musical numbers, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, I just can't wait to be king. The original animated version, there's, like, multi, like everything goes red and purple, and it's flashy colors, and the animals are stacked on top of each other. It's a wild musical number. Here, it's just, you know, Simba hopping up and down a river, just like a normal <laughs> lion would, I guess. And then you get to the scene where, like, Mufasa has to die. Like, the most dramatic, like, powerful moment of the whole movie. But then you just have this, like, realistically textured cat face that just can't emote whatsoever. And it does the (laughs) same, like, zoom out where it's like he sees him falling, like, no! And it's just a dull, blank cat face. It doesn't work. (laughs) So I'm I'm getting Uncanny Valley vibes. Or maybe, like... uh, just miscalculated. Yes, miscalculated. I won't say it's like 
not uncanny. It just it doesn't work for the dramatic tension of the movie. So okay. it's like if if they were just trying to if they were trying to tell a wholly original story where it wasn't you know Hamlet in Africa, then maybe it would mm. work. But because again, this is meant to be like kind of Shakespeare and over the top with musical numbers, like it doesn't work yeah. when you're limited to having actual physical creatures that act in like real physical creatures. With a cartoon, you can divorce yourself from that reality, but you can't do that with real animals. And the other problem with the movie is, again, like, because they're trying to recapture the magic of the original, like, everything's just by rote. Like, all the actors are just rereading the same lines from the original movie, especially the dramatic parts. The only actors who kind of acquit themselves well in this movie are the comedic ones. Uh, the hyenas are now played by um, uh, Keegan-Michael Key and Eric Andre, and they have, like, yep. a new kind of double act to play with that. Like, one okay. is really clingy, and the other one, like, wants personal space. And so that's new. That's fresh. That's something not from the original. And again, you have two actors who can kind of, like, stretch their legs. Then you have James Earl Jones just rereading the same dialogue, and you have uh, uh, Ejiofor. I can't pronounce his first name. Chiwetel Ejiofor. <laughs> Chiwetel Ejiofor playing Scar, and he's just, you know, reading it dramatically, like, almost sleepwalking. Same thing with all the other, no, like, serious bummer. moments. But then you okay. get to... I, that's to the only thing I was... That's the only change I was looking forward to, because mm-hmm. Chiwetel Ejiofor is one of the world's best actors, and maybe he can, I don't know, intone more menace rather than the 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 fey the fey <laughs> uh, silly impression that Jeremy Irons is doing in the original. I, I I guess like comedic, the the improv bits is that the only thing that really improves on on the original? I guess. Yeah, basically the comedic parts work because they're more kind of tailored to the actual actor playing them. Like Timon yeah. this time is played by um, Billy Eichner this time. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, it's obviously very much a Billy Eichner role. And he's playing very much into his range and his comedic chops. And so that works because it's fresh and it's new and it works as opposed to uh, Donald Glover who has to play Simba and he's playing it like Simba and he's just rereading the lines like Simba did in the original <laughs> movie. And it's just... And it's also pretty incongruous because eventually he has to meet Nala up again who in the older version is played by uh, Beyonce. And they yeah. just... Those two... Like, obviously, voice actors have to record on different days, but it's like, yeah, it really would have benefited if they at least tried to get them in the same room because they are on completely <laughs> different pages. Because, okay, <laughs> Donald Glover is like playing it very casual, he's playing it very cool, and Beyonce is doing her Beyonce thing with perfect diction, and everything is read quite perfectly. And it just, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, not, uh, I won't say that nothing in this movie doesn't work, but a lot does not work. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, where would you rank it? Because you said you've basically seen every Disney remake now. Where would you rank it uh, among the hierarchy? Like, what's the... I don't want to use the word best, but what's what's the um, least painful of these Disney remakes to sit through? Well, definitely Maleficent, I would say. Because okay. that is pretty much a wholesale cloth new story that they are telling. Okay. And Angelina Jolie is, you know, she was born to play that role. So <laughs> I'm kind of actually looking forward to the sequel, and I kind of want to see what direction they take it in. Uh, I would say probably it's really hard to rank because they're all so pretty bad <laughs> and so interchangeable and just ultimately forgetful. I think that's the ultimate sin okay. of this movie is it's just, it's the Lion King. Again, you bought your ticket. There's your Lion King. Get out of here. Whereas, you know, even though we're not big fans of the original, I appreciate the fact that it has been a, a high watermark and a watershed moment for young people of our ilk. So, yeah, that's what I haven't even seen it, but that's what I'm most disappointed by. Cause I see the reviews and I see, I mean, there has to be a reason that none of the trailers actually showed any dialogue between 
Donald Glover's character and Beyonce's character. And that's because, as you said, they probably have no chemistry because they never recorded on the same day in the same room at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, also, they're the, lions the fact that can't they, emote. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, in, but in spite of all that, like, the market has spoken, and this is already, like, the biggest film of the year, uh, mm-hmm. box office-wise. So they're going to keep, I don't know, they're going to do a live-action uh, Hercules at this point. Heck, they're going to do a live-action Emperor's New Groove, and it'll be just as terrible and interminable as all the other ones, apparently. So, because yeah. the, the market has spoken, like, we could see this coming a mile away, and yet, I don't know, the, the, the swine of, this, of our movie-going <laughs> populace has decided to lap it up anyway. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've been complaining about them for nigh on how many years, but I still end up seeing all of them eventually, yeah. whether it's on VOD or something. I've, I've seen all of them, and I can't recommend a single one wholeheartedly, so okay. there's your lot. Ugh. Okay. I hate myself. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. Well, as a tradition, you saw the big Hollywood uh, release, mm-hmm. whereas I went down to my local art house and saw something that was intentionally off-putting. <laughs> okay. Uh, the privilege of living in L.A. You get to be a movie nerd. Indeed. indeed. So I'm going to show off my white privilege here by talking about a movie that's all white people. John, mm-hmm. have you heard of this movie, The Mountain? Uh, yes. I, I've, a few <laughs> reviews I noticed were popping up. It's always weird. Like, I, I, I usually like to, you know, pretend that I have the finger on the pulse. So it's like when an independent yeah. movie is kind of generally coming up. Like, at least I'll have a familiarity with the trailer. But then occasionally an independent movie will just, like, come out of nowhere like this one did. And it's just like, oh, okay, I guess this is a movie. Cool. Whatever. Yeah. It has it has name actors. Like, it stars Jeff Goldblum, Ty Sheridan, who was in Ready Player One and now plays Cyclops in the new, latest X-Men movies. Like, so it has these stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but And it's also directed by, I guess, a... I'll call him an indie stalwart at this point, a guy named Rick Alverson. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other movie I could I could see I've seen of his and maybe that you've heard of was a weird drama called The Comedy, <laughs> starring Tim Heidecker oh, and Eric yes. Wareheim. <laughs> I'm familiar with this one. <laughs> yes, and so if if you're familiar with the work of of Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim, um, it's kind of intentionally off-putting and uncomfortable. Um, and Rick Alverson has kind of taken taken that tact with this uh, latest movie too. It's it's about a, a mentally disturbed young man who lives uh, whose whose mother has been committed to a mental hospital. He wants to see her but can't, and is now under the thumb of a very domineering father. Speaking that this is such an artistic movie, uh, his father's a figure skater. Um, so <laughs> much uh, much of the movie takes place around it, it well it takes place in the early 1950s and in and around uh, an ice hockey rink in upstate new york hmm. so like we got a lot of like interesting touches like his father passed away very early in the movie and so the his uh, his students basically put on a show for him <laughs> hmm. um you can see this in the trailer like they're they're uh, basically uh, skating around a portrait of him, like choreographed with these uh, uh, bird feathers. So, <laughs> yes, yes, it is that kind of movie, and I believe it is intentionally trying to uh, tries your patience and and does off put you. Um, th- what I will give it credit for is is the cinematography. It's got a unique. It's not even uh, Academy ratio. It's one by one square aspect wow. ratio. Okay. Yes. 
<laughs> When's the last time someone did a square ratioed movie? I've never. I, I, I can I can barely think of uh, ever really. So maybe mm-hmm. this is the first time ever. Um, okay. But that does that does lead to a lot of interesting framing, um, incredible production design because they did find locations that genuinely looked straight out of like 1951, um, mm-hmm. including one scene set in a bowling alley where uh, Jeff Goldblum gets to put on gets gets to put on his charm. I do wish it was just the story of Jeff Goldblum, aka a brain surgeon in decline. Because uh, following following the Ty Sheridan's Andy's his character's name is Andy. Following the death of his father, he gets taken in by Jeff Goldblum under his employ to take pictures, carries equipment as he goes around and sells his bottomy services to various local mental hospitals. Okay. And so, <laughs> yeah. And what's Color most interesting intrigued. is yes. <laughs> what's most interesting is yeah it. The movie is as off-putting as that practice was. I mm-hmm. I, I hope I hope <laughs> italics was. I hope nobody does it anymore. Um, so uh, it's not really graphic in that portrayal. Instead, we see the whole movie through uh, Ty Sheridan's character's eyes, um, mm-hmm. and he is mentally disturbed. So like the the whole mise en scène, the pacing, like all basically perfectly reflects that. But what's most interesting is when we follow Jeff Goldblum's character, who who you know has as Jeff Goldblum does has this incredible charm. Mm-hmm. So, like when he's not working, he he charms the ladies. Um, but he is in decline. There's signs of alcoholism. There's screw ups where he actually gets to portray some anger. I can't remember the last time I I've seen like Jeff Goldblum outside of like talk show appearances <laughs> and being his aloof <laughs> self. Like I I can't remember the last time I actually saw him act. Uh, so, hello, like, in a new classic called Hotel Artemis, he plays the bad guy. I think that's true. Yes. Remember Hotel I, I, Artemis, everybody? Yeah. <laughs> Jodie Foster. I was going to bring up another weird accent. <laughs> yes, I was going to bring up Independence Day Resurgence, but um, oh, <laughs> but there's a lot of nuance in in, in David Nevin as well. But um, like he does get he does get to demonstrate a uh, real like growth as a character. Though, but the problem is like we have to keep following Ty Sheridan. We don't really know what he wants other than like seeing his mother, mm-hmm. like. There, there's implication that she's already like far gone and he'll never get to see her so then there's this romance that comes in and then we get introduced to Denny Levant uh, John do you know who Denny Levant is? No I have no idea Okay so <laughs> a part of, this film has got to build up it's, it's, it's art bona fides it's art house bona fides right? Mm-hmm. So we have Jeff Goldblum. We have a, a an intentionally off-putting tone. Uh, we have a, a wacky aspect ratio, which is now in vogue. But we also cast. <laughs> they just um, did it for the Instagram likes, of course. Exactly. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have to cast um, art house actors, namely Udo Kier, who plays uh, Andy's father. Mm-hmm. You remember Udo Kier from the various German B-movies and, and a lot of Quentin Tarantino joints. But there's also Denis Levant, who is a very weird French actor. Um, okay. He's known for being a, a frequent collaborator of Leo Car- uh, Leo's Carax. Um, he plays a character named Monsieur Oliver, um, who wears a green suit and has long hair, uh, a dead pale white eye, and basically dances around weirdly. And so, okay. basically, he takes over the latter 20 minutes of the movie, and that's when I was just, like, waiting for it to end. Um, okay. Because we really lose the plot, and he just starts shouting in Franglish. And um, basically, at that point, we have no idea what Andy is really looking for in life. Um, he and his intended, like, he does start a budding romance with a woman named Susan, who's also mentally uh, disturbed. 
Um, we don't really know what they're doing, and Denny Levant is basically allowed to take over the movie from there. And that's when, really, you can also like cut out early in the movie um, after he does this. He's he's weird dancing, which is what you cast Denny Levant for. Um, then you can just like cut out and just say, "Yeah, the movie's over from here." Okay. So that's th- that's my consumer advice. Yeah, The Mountain, weird movie. Um, <laughs> maybe... I was I was gonna say I was worried that you were having a stroke. You were just randomly throwing words at me that meant nothing. Demi Lover. <laughs> Someone get help, John. You have to listen more intently, okay? <laughs> no, you were like I'm, talking I'm about these things like here. I had any John, idea. I'm You're spitting. Like, I don't have to tell you who Udo Cure is, of course. I'm like, <laughs> y- y- yes, please. <laughs> John, come on. We're we're in we're in film podcast territory here. Like, of course, <laughs> the listeners are going to say, "Wait, John doesn't know who Denny Levant is." <laughs> Come on. I, I guess I don't. I guess I'm not. Yeah. Again, that's why I'm an aspiring snob, not a true snob. Yes. Okay. Well, I got to I got to prove my snob bona fides by going to see The Mountain at the New Earth Theater and There um, you go. Can't say I was can't say I was overwhelmingly happy with my choice, but uh no. I actually I'm glad I did it and then I can brag about it on a podcast <laughs> for everybody to hear. <laughs> Well, my only regret is that I didn't get it. We didn't wait a week, another week, so I could watch Dora the Explorer and report back. I'm sorry, Dora yes. and the City of Lost Gold. I know. Speaking of uh, live action remakes <laughs> that um, <laughs> will just traumatize and terrorize a ch- or just disappoint children of a certain age. Like, uh, yeah, no wonder we're not going to do anything about climate change because <laughs> this is what we have to look forward to. Ugh. Well, I mean, oof. that's just a lot of content we just threw out there, Greg. Just just a Indeed. whole heaping pile of content. Exactly. And, <laughs> John, what if I told you you wanted more? Let's, let's show them the dessert menu. How huh? could they possibly want more? I mean, what else could we possibly give them? Well, John, that's until you don't think you want more at a restaurant until you see that dessert menu. And then, mm. you, ooh, then you start fawning over the items. In this yes. case, a Twitter feed, a mm. Facebook feed. An Instagram yeah. feed, a damn good Instagram feed, where you get Spotlight Sundays. This is where you get recommendations. If you can't listen to the episode, don't worry. We got recommendations on Instagram. Yeah, just follow us on Instagram. You don't need to listen to the episode. I think you should, though. I think you'll get more out yeah, of it oh, than my Instagram definitely, feed. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Enjoy the episode. And share it yeah. with your friends. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. I mean, why not? In fact, the best way you can help people find the podcast is you go to your podcast service of choice, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and you rate us five stars. Yes, more people will find it. We'll create this aspiring snob community together. We'll talk about movies. We'll create dialogue. Isn't that what we really want? Dialogue, dialogue. interaction. We're connecting. Yes. It's the internet. Yes. Everything on the internet's great. Yes. <laughs> he said with a resigned <laughs> sigh. <sighs> John, some things are good on the internet. Namely, email. What an invention, huh? <laughs> what a what a kicker. Let me tell you, this electronic yeah. mail, it's great. Yes. And if you want to reach us with electronic mail, you can reach out to us at AspiringSnobs at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and recommendations. Yes, let us know what you thought of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, tell us why you're wrong, because you're presumably uh, <laughs> a Gen X white male. <laughs> You're one of the few who rated it to the IMDb Top 250. I assume it's on there yeah. currently. Like, come on. Oh, a, assuredly, yeah. <laughs> every movie, it's like, a, films. it's like automatic qualifying in golf. Every uh, Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino <laughs> movie, like, automatically gets a spot up there in the Top 50 or so. <laughs> Wait, isn't it Cannes the same way? Or there was some yes. film. Okay, yes, I've Cannes, used that okay. analogy before. Yeah, for the Cannes mm-hmm. Film Festival. Yeah. Okay. 
that's a better, <laughs> that's a bit more apt analogy. I know. Anyway, you know, but we do take recommendations on our email, and because mm-hmm. we have a schedule set for the movies that we're going to watch in subsequent weeks. Exactly, and next week we'll be catching up on a movie. Once again, I'm showing my ignorance. I've never heard of, but Greg mm-hmm. thoroughly recommends. Next week we're going to be watching Throne of Blood. Yeah, I I I'd given John too much editorial control over <laughs> Excuse uh, our schedule. Me. And so I'm taking it back with looking at directors that I know and already love and now I'm going to force like I did back in the past <laughs> I'm going to expose John to new movies. In this case, a, an Akira Kurosawa movie that neither of us have seen yet. Mm. Can you believe that? There's an Akira Kurosawa movie John that I haven't seen. It's true. I I I'm surprised too. I'm really proud of you, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to fire up that Criterion Channel machine. Um, smoke's going to be billowing out <laughs> as it chugs along at a two-hour and 50-minute uh, samurai epic. So Exactly. I mean, Here we go. You got that. I think that's the, that's the one thing that will separate the Criterion Collection, if they can recreate the whole magic of cinema with the smoky yes. room and the clickety-clack of the projector. It's on 35 mm. millimeter. Mm, yeah. The smell of the turpentine that keeps those things running. <laughs> Yeah. I assume it's turpentine. The, the floors are sticky. <laughs> the seats <laughs> reek of tobacco fumes. <laughs> there's pe- there's someone giving a blowjob in the back row. You know, classic yeah. cinema. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring, man. <laughs> you don't know what's going on.